0: Well, good morning, Hallows Church. Uh, It's good to be with you. Um, My name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And and have the privilege of leading us through our study of the Scriptures as we kind of kickstart a new season here in the life of our church. We're also kickstarting a new series. And so together, we have the joy of studying the book of Judges together. So let me invite you to grab your Bibles and find your way to the book of Judges. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, know that every Bible has a table of contents. Utilize that resource. It's usually at the front of every Bible uh, to navigate its pages. Find your way to Judges chapter 1. Now, uh, studying a book titled Judges might not excite anyone in this room. Uh, You might think that's a book that seemed with the title is more appropriate for a law school classroom than for a church service. And so maybe you're not that excited about it or maybe... Uh, it's a title of a book that might frighten you because maybe you've had experiences with judgmental Christians. And so in your mind, you're thinking, yeah, it makes sense uh, that they would have a book titled Judges because that's all I've known about Christians and churches and those types of things. And, and so maybe in your mind, this is the image that popped up in your head when you heard we were studying the book of Judges and uh, just this guy looming. We're kind of probably going to make this guy our mascot, uh, just kind of looming over us about all the bad things things that we're thinking and all the bad things that we're doing and all the bad ways we're feeling, just kind of have this guy pop up on our shoulder as kind of a little illustration of our conscience every day. And so, so maybe this book doesn't excite you. It might even frighten you. Uh, but if you are suffering from a little PTSD uh, just by virtue of the word judge or the book titled Judges, let me just kind of disarm that uh, for a moment because Judges is a title of a book that refers to these 12 uh, men and women that God would raise up throughout the narrative of the book, to deliver Israel from specific situations that they put themselves in as a result of their disobedience, as a result of their disbelief, as a result of their lack of faith and trust in the gospel. And so these stories are kind of stitched together throughout the fabric of the book of Judges. And some of you may be familiar with some of them. Uh, You've heard names like Samson or Deborah or Gideon. Others you may be less familiar, Othniel and, and Ehud and Samgar and And we're going to look at all of them over the course of our study of this book together. Uh, But One of the things to kind of point about these judges is that they were raised up by God to deliver God's people from uh, dire circumstances and situations that they put themselves in. And and so uh, it might be better to kind of understand when you hear the word judge to hear the word deliverer, uh, because that's more kind of how these men and women functioned in the life of God's people. And one thing to recognize as we step into this book is that no one judge ruled over all of Israel at one time. At this time, the nation of Israel is divided up into 12 tribes. And these 12 tribes are seeking to occupy and possess the promised land that God said he would give to Abraham's ancestors. And so they're there to do that, or his descendants, so that they're there to do that. And so you have these twelve tribes, uh, and they're all kind of occupying space and territory that God is giving to them in certain sections and subsections within the parameters of the book of Judges. And so all these narratives that we will look at, they they, they kind of function in more, more, they're much smaller scale than we might uh, be prone to believe when we think or prone to realize when we study something like this as it relates to the nation of Israel. And so with that said, let me identify just a few features about the book of Judges just to kind of set the stage for our study over the next few weeks. And what type of book are we dealing with? Well, it's important to recognize that the book of Judges is, yes, a historical book. It's just chronicling events and actions that have happened in real time and real space with real people, people whose hearts were a lot like ours, people whose Fallen condition was a lot like ours. And so it's a historical book taking place in real time and real space with real people. The events that are chronicled in the book of Judges cover about two to 400 years. And ranging from kind of the close of the Bronze Age, the opening of the Iron Age is where most of these events uh, take place. And so it is a historical book. And we want to keep that in mind. Another dynamic of the book of Judges is that it is a graphic book. As you read through the book of Judges, there's a lot in it that's going to make you blush. Uh, Every one of us are going to feel very uncomfortable and maybe even queasy when we consider some of the details of the stories found in the book of Judges. And so with that said, I would encourage moms and dads who have little ones, uh, they're more than welcome to be exposed to whatever you would have them be exposed to in our study together. But I will try to give you guys heads up uh, over the course of time that uh, if there's a young one, a little one that you would rather kind of deal with some of that stuff with in a different setting or in a different context, I'll give you a heads up so you can kind of do that. Again, utilize our kids ministry during this time as we look at some of this content that can be quite graphic, quite quite brutal and quite bloody. So it's a historical book. It's a graphic book. Another dynamic to the book of Judges is that it is a prophetic book. Uh, One of the unique things about how the Old Testament is organized, and and, and as it relates to the Hebrew people, the Hebrew people basically organized the Old Testament in three categories. There are three types of books. There was the law, the writings, and the prophets. Now the law concerned the first five books of the Bible. That's the Pentateuch, the law, uh, according to the Hebrew mind, how they understood the Old Testament's makeup. But then you also had the writings and the writings would consist of the poetry that you read in Psalms, the wisdom literature that you discover in Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes and some of those books, they're known as the writings. But then you, the biggest category in the Old Testament was the prophets and the prophets constituted the vast majority of books in the Old Testament. And there were two categories for the prophets. Uh, There were the former prophets and then there were the latter prophets. The latter prophets are the prophets we're probably most familiar with, like Ezekiel, uh, Isaiah, all the way down to the little bitty books that wrap up the end of the Old Testament with all these names that we have a hard time pronouncing. Those are kind of the latter prophets in the Hebrew mind. But then the former prophets, it might surprise you to know, uh, consists of the book of Joshua. The book of Judges, the book of Ruth, the book of 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Samuels. That's how the Hebrew people understood the Old Testament. And so when you step into Judges, you're dealing with a prophetic book. And essentially what that means is, is that Judges is written to speak to every generation words of warning and words of hope that the book of Judges depicts and portrays what life uh, looks like when God is not trusted, when God is not believed in. And it showcases in graphic ways the mess human beings make of their lives, the mess human beings make of their societies, of their cultures, of their nation, when God is not trusted and when God's promises are not believed. And so in that sense, it is a prophetic book. But then another dynamic is that the book of Judges is a cyclical book. This is one of the unique features as far as how the book of Judges is put together. It makes it kind of challenging to, to teach or to preach through because we want to read a book in a linear fashion that kind of runs along a linear plane, but the book of Judges doesn't work like that. And so a lot of the stories in Judges overlap one another. They are concurrent with each other because the book is more cyclical in its organization and its nature. Now, to say the book is cyclical this means that when you step into some of the stories, whether it be Samson or Ehud, you're going, to be seeing, um, you're going to be seeing a pattern and a paradigm that is common all throughout the book, and that pattern might be illustrated like this. You're going to see a moment where the people of Israel disobey God. They do not trust. They're disobedient, and as a result of their disobedience, you're going to see God bring his discipline or bring his judgment upon them, and that's when, that's when things really get tough in the book of Judges. And so you have disobedience, which leads to discipline. And then in the midst of being disciplined by God, the people of Israel recognize at some point in time, they wake up to the problem that they are in and they become desperate. And so the people of Israel, like many of us, when we find ourselves in desperate situations, we cry out to God. We need his help. We need his intervention. And so you'll find this pattern of disobedience, of discipline and desperation. And in the midst of that desperation, what Israel will do is they will cry out for deliverance. They will ask God for help. And one of the most remarkable things about the book of Judges is that the book of Judges is is, it showcases God's resolve and his contentment to respond and to deliver his people, to always come through for people who, for many reasons, should have disqualified themselves from being delivered. For many reasons, God should have cut Ties with Israel, but he never does. He keeps his covenant, he keeps his promise, and he delivers Israel time and time and time again. So that's kind of the cycle, which brings us to the fifth feature of this book, and that is that this book is a messianic book. This is a book that, as we study it together, we are going to see the Messiah anticipated. We're going to see our need for the Messiah being. Amplified as we begin to see, you know, we're a lot like the people of Israel, the people of Israel in this book, as it relates to our hearts and and how we are constantly uh, falling down and falling backwards, and we're constantly in need of deliverance. And so this whole book has this thrust towards God's ultimate deliverer, the Man Christ Jesus, or the God-Man Christ Jesus. So it is messianic. It is a hopeful book in that regard. No matter how dark and how. Uh, intense this book gets, there was always a silver lining. There was always a little ray of light looming in the horizon. It kind of reminds me of that moment in the Lord of the Rings where Frodo and Sam are on their quest to destroy the ring of power. And there's a moment where they are tempted to give up because everything is too dark. Everything is too tough. Everything is too intense. And they want to turn back and not follow through with their quest. And then just before throwing in the towel, Sam will look up into the sky. And when he looks into the sky, he sees a star. And in that moment, Tolkien writes that that star, uh, when he saw the star, the beauty of it struck his heart, and he found hope returning. And he considered how the evil and the darkness of that present moment was just a passing thing, that it was temporary. And he was reminded in that moment that there was a light and high beauty that forever exists beyond the reach of darkness. Well, time and time again, as we look into the book of Judges, we're going to be reminded that there is a light and high beauty that forever exists beyond the reach of darkness. There is grace available to the people of God. There is deliverance available to the people of God. There is Messiah King Jesus who lives and reigns to provide for his people and protect his people and deliver his people over and over and over again. And so there's always this ray of hope that we're going to see. And so that means... The book of Judges is a messianic book, so to speak. Now, that's the type of book that we're dealing with when we step into this book. When you, can, when you step into the book of Judges, trying to help you get your bearings for this study, is that the book of Judges kind of breaks down into three sections or three parts. There's a real long prologue or introduction to the book that starts basically where we start today in chapter 1, verse 1, and it runs all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. But then at chapter 3, verse 7, that's where you kind of get into the narratives of Judges or the stories of the Judges. And those stories will take us all the way to chapter 16, verse 31. But then at the very end of the book, you find the real lengthy epilogue from chapter 17 to 21. And that's when things really get graphic. And I'll give you some heads up on that as we get there. Uh, But what we're going to do this week and next week is we're just going to swim or take a swim in the prologue a little bit. And we're going to look at the, this ominous yet hopeful opening to the book of Judges and see what the Lord might have us consider as we study this book together. And so the prologue begins right there in Judges chapter 1. And if you look at verse 1, this is what we read. It says, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord. And they said, Who will be the first to fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, and you might want to circle this and make note of this: Judah is to go. I have handed the land over to him. Now, what's interesting about the opening words of the book of Judges is that they echo and mirror the opening words of the book of Joshua. In the book of Joshua, we're told after the death of Moses, but what's different is that after the death of Moses, uh, Moses was had prepared and equipped Joshua to take over. Joshua was a young man when the people of Israel were delivered out of Egyptian slavery, and he was a young man growing up as they walked 40 years through the wilderness. And at some point in time, Moses saw potential in him, and he tagged him as his apprentice or as his his assistant. And so he began to spend some extra time with Joshua to prepare him for the moment when Moses would go, and it would be Joshua's time to step into leadership for the people of God. And just before Moses died, or when Moses died, the people of Israel were right were brought right up to the cusp of the Promised Land. They had not yet arrived in the land that God said He would give them. Instead, they're right there on the edge. Moses dies, and he hands responsibilities over to Joshua and says, "You're going to be the one who will take the people of Israel into the Promised Land and begin to seize it, conquer it, bring it under uh, Egyptian, uh, sorry, Israelite ownership." And so. There's a moment in Judges uh, Joshua chapter one verse one and two where we read this. He says, The Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you and all the people prepare to cross over the Jordan to the land I am giving the Israelites. And then in, in the rest of the chapter, in about three or four different ways, God tells Joshua, Look, if you're gonna do this, you're gonna have to be strong and courageous. You're going to have to trust me because there are going to be moments when you're not going to want to do what I'm telling you to do, but you must be strong and courageous. And the good news of the book of Joshua is that Joshua was, he trusted God. He believed God. And so the book of Judges, is, uh, Joshua is one big upswing where God is using Joshua to lead Israel on a series of successful and God-empowered conquests. And it's a triumphant book. If there was a soundtrack for the book of Joshua, all the songs would be played in major key. It's a triumphant book. But when you step into the book of Judges, everything kind of moves in a different direction. And if there was a soundtrack to the book of Judges, it would all be played in minor keys. It would be intense. It would be distorted. It would be disorienting. And, but when you come to the book of, to the end of Joshua, just before Judges, uh, Joshua dies, he He's talking to the leaders of Israel, of the tribes of Israel, and listen to what he says to them towards the end of the book. He says in Joshua, Joshua chapter 3, verse 5, the Lord your God will force them back on your account, referring to the Canaanites and the people who are in the promised land, and drive them out before you so that you can take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. So he's saying God's going to go before you. He's going to empower you. He's actually going to be the one to drive out these peoples. But then he goes on. Same thing he heard from Moses. Be very strong and continue obeying all that was written in the book of the law of Moses so that you do not turn from it to the right or left and so that you do not associate with these nations remaining among you. Do not call on the names of their gods or make an oath to them. Do not serve them or bow in worship to them. Instead, here's the key, be loyal to the Lord your God as you have been up to this day. And so just before Joshua dies, he tells the leaders of Israel, look, I want you to exercise courageous faith. Courageous faith in the promises of God. And that's going to be challenging because as we will learn and as we will discover is that a courageous faith in the promises of God will always lead us to approach life in an uncommon way or in a different way. And the way I want you to show you that this morning is that when you step into the book of Judges and as the people of Israel begin to follow Joshua, begin to step into the promised land and they begin to take over the promised land, so to speak, they are to do so according to the counsel or the will and the ways of God. In other words, God gave them their strategy and he told them what they should do and what they shouldn't do in order to take the promised land. But what's interesting about the strategy that God would give the people of Israel is that his strategy was very uncommon it was an uncommon military strategy that they were to employ. And we'll show you this on two ways. One, the people of Israel, when they stepped into the promised land, they were to go against any people group that they found there. No matter how intimidated they might be, no matter how more technologically advanced they might be, no matter how stronger their military force and might must be, the people of Israel were not to shrink back. They were to go against any military that was in the land Now, common military policy says otherwise. Common military policy then, common military policy today says, look, you do, not, you do not fight superior armies. You don't go up against bigger armies. You don't go up against better armies. You don't go up against more technologically advanced and skillful or savvy armies. You just don't do it. So there we're told that Israel is to employ an uncommon strategy because they're to go against everybody, even the ones they were most afraid of. But then the second dynamic to it is that the people of Israel were not allowed, and this is very important, they were told by God that they were not allowed to plunder and to enslave any people group in the land. They were to drive them out. They were not to take them in and make them slaves or to plunder their property or to plunder their riches and resources. And again, this is an uncommon strategy because common military policy dictates that you don't drive out weaker peoples. Instead, if there's a weaker people at your disposal, you dominate them, you exploit them for your own economic benefit, your own economic gain. And so Israel was supposed to do things differently. They were to go about this campaign in an uncommon fashion so that who Israel chooses to fight and how Israel responds to the victory they receive, that's what's gonna showcase where their loyalty lies. That's what's gonna showcase who they're trusting in and who they are uh, loyal to whether they're going to be loyal to their God or they're going to be loyal to themselves. And there's a word there for us because you know that the choices you make on a daily basis, as you live your life by faith and there are moments when you are to exercise courageous faith in the promises of God and you start making choices on a day-to-day moment-by-moment level, your choices are going to reveal where your true loyalty lies. Your choices are going to reveal, okay, am I trusting God or am I trusting self? Am I trusting God or am I trusting culture? Am I trusting God or am I trusting society? Who, or who are you trusting in every given moment is determined by the choices you make. But if you and I are going to live our lives in an uncommon way, if we're going to walk by faith through the world that is, we're going to find ourselves being led to take uncommon paths all the time. This means that as we are faithful to Jesus and we're listening to his guidance and to his word, as we see about what type of men and women we are to be, what type of church we are to be, it means that we're to approach everything in an uncommon fashion. This means that we approach marriage in an uncommon way. We believe that marriage is between one man and one woman, covenanting together in relationship to their God, forever commitment, and and that's what we honor, that's what we hold, that's what we believe, and that's an uncommon understanding of marriage today. But not only as it relates to marriage, it relates to sex and sexuality. We take an uncommon approach to sex and sexuality. We do not believe sex and sexuality should define us, and we do not believe it should dominate us. We believe that sex is a good gift from God, and it should be utilized in the ways that God intended for it to be used. And doing that, committing to that, means what? It means we must exercise courageous faith in the promises of God, which is gonna lead us to do uncommon things. We're gonna be uncommon people in how we relate to one another in marriage, how we relate to sex and sexuality. It's gonna affect how we relate to singleness so that we affirm people in their singleness. We do not view single people as being incomplete human beings or that they're living a half of life because they're not married. No, we're gonna see the beauty, the value, the dignity and the potential and the and the opportunity that comes to a person living a single life. Recognizing that Jesus lived a single life for 30 plus years, he was fine. Recognizing that uh, Paul would teach in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that singleness gives you a wonderful opportunity to maximize your life for the glory of God and service to His mission. And so we don't we don't put pressure on single people to get married. We do not give the impression to single persons that they are incomplete. No, we affirm them in their singleness, and we. Try to encourage them to approach their singleness in an uncommon way. This means we don't want single people to feel the pressure that they have to get married. And we don't want single people to feel like they don't belong in the life of our church because they're not married. No, all of that is common. That's common outside the church, but it's not going to be common here. We approach life in an uncommon way in every discernible category. Marriage, sex, singleness, work, ambition, Work and ambition is something that we approach uh, not just to get, but to give. We wanna contribute to the flourishing of those around us. We wanna work well for the glory of God. We want to bless those around us. We wanna work with integrity. We wanna go about our jobs in ways that is uncommon. This is what the life of faith does. And this is what the nation of Israel are intended to imitate and illustrate as they go about seizing the promised land that God said he would give them. And so you consider that as you step further into the story. Picking up in verse three, Judah said to his brother Simeon, come with me to my allotted territory let us fight against the Canaanites. I will also go with you to your allotted territory. So Simeon went with him. Verse four, when Judah attacked, get this, the Lord handed the Canaanites and the Perizzites over to them. So you find the Lord making their conquest successful. He's giving them victory. Now, just to pause there, because this is one of the features in judges that can cause some Christians to be embarrassed by this book, and it's one of the features of the Bible that we are, uh, that many people may be offended by. I mean, why would God tell Israel to conquer the land of Canaan and to defeat peoples that were living there? This is an offensive dynamic. This is a, an intense dynamic as it relates to how we approach this book. And Now, a lot could be said about this, and as our series goes on, we will provide more reasons and we will provide more resources as to why this is happening and why God is leading Israel in this direction, but let me just give you one example that's particularly important right off the bat, and this one reason is found in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9, and this passage makes it very clear that when we talk about the people who are occupying Canaan, we're not talking about an innocent people. We're not talking about a morally neutral people. We're talking about people who were created by God, people who rebelled against God, people who were, um, people who were uh, accountable to God. And so Deuteronomy makes this quite clear in Deuteronomy chapter 18. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not imitate the detestable customs of those nations. No one among you is to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire. Practice divination, tell fortunes, interpret omens, practice sorcery, cast spells, consult a medium or a spiritist, or inquire of the dead, all of which archaeologists and histories have discovered to be quite common practices by the Canaanite peoples who were living in the land at that time. Then he goes on, everyone who does these acts is detestable to the Lord, and the Lord your God is driving out the nations before you because of these detestable acts. You see, the primary reason, the primary purpose for driving out the Canaanites wasn't vengeance. It wasn't uh, to economic to, to give Israel an economic leg up on all the other peoples in the land. The primary purpose for it was spiritual, and the people who are living in the land of Canaan were not innocent. They were wicked. They were brutal. They were sinful people. And so there's a sense in this very unique period of time that is not to be repeated by any other nation in the world today so that no nation can consciously say we are God's instrument of judgment on other nations, driving them out. Nobody can say that today. But back then, there's a sense in which Israel was being used by God as an instrument of judgment upon the people in Canaan who had rebelled against God and who had given themselves to some very wicked and some very egregious, atrocious practices. To show you that, you just keep reading in the chapter. You step into verse 6. This makes verse six incredibly important because as they were being handed over the Canaanites and the Perizzites, it says, they struck down 10,000 men in Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek. And now Adonai isn't a name. That's a word that means ruler. This is the ruler of the people that are being targeted here. And they fought against him and struck down the Canaanites and Perizzites. Verse six, when Adonai Bezek fled, They pursued him, caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes, saying, you cannot play Xbox anymore. And they cut off his thumbs, they cut off his big toes. But then notice how Adonai Bezek interprets that moment. And there's so much irony in what he says. As you and I might hear that and be offended, thinking, well, why would Israel treat him like that? Adonai Bezek has a completely different interpretation of his own experience. And listen to what he says. He says, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table. God has repaid me for what I have done. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. So what that means is that Adonai Bezek recognized what was happening to him as a a work of justice. That he was reaping what he had sown. He was experiencing the consequences of the atrocities he had committed. And so here you're given an ironic picture of the judgment of God coming into this man's life. You know, one of the ways we want to think about God's judgment and God's justice as it relates to how it kind of shows up in ordinary ways throughout history and even in our lives today when we find ourselves in these moments is that God's judgment tends to show up when he gives us over to our desires, when he lets us go the way that we choose for ourselves and do the things that we choose for ourselves, and he hands us over to that which we desire. He hands us over to that which we want, and then we find that what we desire or that what we want just leaves us in devastation. It leads us to like the older son and the, or the younger brother in the story of the prodigal son who went to his father and said, let me have my share of the inheritance. And the father said, okay, here it is. You can live as though I don't exist. Live as though I am dead. And he goes and he squanders all of his stuff and reckless living. What was that? That was a picture of judgment. That was the father giving the son over to what he wanted. And there's a sense in which God's judgment takes that form ordinarily in our lives. All that say is that if you wanna live your life without God, you can but you're also going to reap the consequences of that kind of life one day. And so here, Adonai Buzek kind of represents the judgment of God in this ironic fashion where he's responding, but there's more to it than that. There's more to it because Israel's treatment of this guy in this moment is the first ominous sign of what's going to, of what will plague Israel throughout the book. It's the first ominous sign of what's gonna plague Israel throughout the book, and here's why. Israel is treating him the way that he treated others. He, they cut off his big toes and his thumbs, and, and he's like, yeah, I used to do the same thing to people. So in other words, Israel begins to adopt the Canaanite customs in this moment. And this is just a little ominous sign of what will plague Israel throughout the rest of the book of Judges. As, as time goes on, Israel will begin to adopt more and more and more the customs and the practices of Canaan the customs and the practices of the people who lived in the land before them. And every time they do, it's going to take them further and further away from their God. It's going to betray their loyalty. This is why one scholar would say that the book of Judges, they describe Judges as the canonization of Israel, of Israel becoming like the nations rather than living as a light to the nations. And that was a huge problem. And the first sign of that is when Israel treats Adonai Bezek in this in this way. Now, let me say for a moment, just, uh, you know, you know that we are a church and our name is the Hallows Church. And let me just explain a little bit about why that is in light of this. You see, the word hallowed means to, it means uncommon, it means sacred, it means unique. And so when we say that we, we identify ourselves as the Hallows Church, we're recognizing that in our worship, we wanna hallow God, we wanna treat God in an uncommon way. We want to exalt him and lift him up above every other person, place, or thing in our lives. We want God to be God. That makes us a worshiping people who want to hallow God, treat him in an uncommon way. But then at the same time, there are words all throughout the New Testament that that are used in reference to the church that are related to the same term. And so on one hand, yes, we want to be people who hallow God, who relate to him in an uncommon way. But we also recognize that God relates to his people and, as, as hallowed people, as unique people, as uncommon people, meaning he sets us apart in the world that is to live uncommon lives, different lives, unique lives. And so when we call ourselves the hallowed church, we're, we're embracing our calling to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is quite uncommon. And we are embracing our calling to love our neighbors as ourselves, which again is quite uncommon. And so we want to be the hallowed church in this regard who is relating to God in an uncommon way, relating to each other in an uncommon way, relating to our city in an uncommon way. We want to avoid the canonization of the church, so to speak. There's a guy by the name of C.H. Spurgeon who said back in the day that the reason why the world, the church has so little impact where she is is because... The church looks so much like the world, essentially, that it's hard to tell the difference between those who are trusting in the gospel, loving Jesus, and those who aren't. Well, we want to be a faith family who recognizes that perhaps the greatest thing we can bring into the city of Seattle isn't our skills, it isn't our resources, it isn't our competencies. Perhaps the greatest thing we can bring into this city is our holiness. It's our hallowedness. It's the uncommon way we view the world. It's the uncommon way we view other people. It's the uncommon way we go about worshiping God through Jesus and loving and serving one another and our city. So we want to avoid the canonization of the church, so to speak, and pursue a courageous faith in the promises of God that lead us to live in an uncommon manner as we go about our worship and our mission here in Seattle. And so you consider that as we continue on in the story. Because you pick up in verse 8, and there you're going to find that the tribe of Judah is continuing a successful conquest, successful campaign. It says, The men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, captured it, put it to the sword, and set the city on fire. Afterward, the men of Judah marched down to fight against the Canaanites who were living in the hill country, the Negev and the Judean foothills. Judah also marched against the Canaanites who were living in Hebron. Hebron was formerly known as Kiriath Arba. They struck down Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there, they marched against the residents of Debir. Debir was formerly known as Kiriath Sefer. And so Israel continues to be successful, God giving them victory. But then you step into verse 11. And here we find a moment where we are kind of microscoped into another story. In the midst of this opening chapter, you had that first microscope story in Adonai Bezek. And here you have another one, but this one is of a different sort. The first one was negative, kind of illustrating justice and Israel's compromise. This one is positive. Check it out, beginning in verse 11. It says, From there they marched against the residents of Debir. Debir was formerly known as Kiriath Sefer. Caleb, who was Joshua's pal, who helped provide assistance to him, whoever attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer, I will give my daughter, <laughs> Aksa, to him as a wife. This is why we're not doing public reading right now. Um, to help you guys so, and me. So Othniel, um, Othniel is one of the judges that we're gonna learn about in a few weeks. Son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, captured it and Caleb gave his daughter, Aksa to him as his wife. When she arrived, she persuaded Othniel to ask her father for a field. As she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what do you want? And she answered him, give me a blessing since you have given me land in the Negev. Give me springs also. So Caleb gave her both the upper and lower springs. So here's what's happening. You have this woman who's married to Othniel and she tells her husband, when we get to my dad, I want you to ask him for land that we can live in, that we can occupy within the promised land parameters. But then uh, before Othniel could even get to the dad to ask him, she jumps off her donkey, horse, whatever, and runs to him and she asks for it. But she doesn't just ask for an ordinary land. She asks for a special land. In other words, she is looking for blessing. Blessing which was a very unique thing for a woman to do in this patriarchal ancient society. Women, for many reasons, were viewed on the outskirts. They were viewed as outsiders. They were not the central focus of much activity, and they weren't the central focus of these types of deals. But yet this daughter steps up boldly. This daughter steps up courageously. This daughter steps up audaciously and asks not just for land, but for a luscious land with water. She's asking for blessing, and Caleb gives it. And what we're being cued into in this moment is this pattern that you're gonna see growing throughout the rest of the book of God bringing the blessing of his deliverance through the least likely people, bringing the blessing of his deliverance through people no one expected, unlikely candidates, unqualified candidates, culturally speaking, morally speaking, spiritually speaking, but yet God was using them time and time and time again to bring blessing to his people. And all of this is done in anticipation of this man from Nazareth named Jesus who had no appearance that was attractive, who walked through the world in a humble fashion, had no place to rest his head, and yet God was bringing the blessing of his kingdom through this unlikely, unsuspected, unsuspecting candidate named Jesus from Nazareth. All of this anticipating that moment when our ultimate deliverer would come. And so we're given a little taste of that here in this moment. But then we keep reading, the conquest rolls on in verse 16. It says, The descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, had gone up with the men of Judah from the city of Palms. Palms is a reference to Jericho, a city that they conquered back in the book of Joshua. To the wilderness of Judah, which was in the Negev era of Erad. They went to live among the people. Judah went with his brother Simeon, struck the Canaanites who were living in Zephthah, and completely destroyed the town. So they named the town Hormah. Judah captured Gaza and its territory, Ashkelon and its territory, and Ekron and its territory. Verse 19, here's the key. The Lord was with Judah, affirming that. The Lord was with Judah and enabled them to take possession of the hill country. But they could not drive out the people who were living in the valley because those people had iron chariots. Judah gave Hebron to Caleb, just as Moses had promised, and Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak. But come back to verse 19. Verse 19 is the crucial moment. And we're told two things. On one hand, the Lord was with Judah. But we're also told that Judah could not drive out the people in the valley because of their iron chariots. They couldn't do what God was telling them to do. And so let me ask you a question. A rhetorical question. You don't have to answer it, but think about it. If God is with you and if God is for you, then is there anything you cannot do that God is telling you to do? If God is with you and if God is for you, is there anything you cannot do if God is telling you to do it? Just kind of hold that question in your minds and then what you're gonna find from verse 19 on down to the rest of the chapter is this snowball effect. Everything starts moving rapidly downhill, picking up steam. And so you next have just... After Judah's failure here in verse 19, it's followed by the failure of all the other tribes. You have the house of Joseph who cut corners and brokered a deal with the Canaanite, who then uh, just built a neighborhood, a neighboring town within the parameters of the promised land. You have Manasseh who failed in their efforts, but notice what Manasseh does in verse 28. When Israel became stronger, they made the Canaanites serve as forced labor. They're taking them as slaves and never drove them out completely. Verse 29, Ephraim failed. Verse 30, Zebulun failed. Verse 31, Asher failed. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the residents of Beth Shemesh, but made them serve as their forced labor. Verse 35, we see another failure by the house of Joseph who made the Amorites, again, serve as forced labor. So from 19 on, you just have a snowball effect, cascading calamity as the people of Israel are failing time and time and time again. Now there's a guy by the name of, Timothy Keller, who pastors a church in Redeemer, he, uh, uh, pastors a church in New York City called Redeemer Presbyterian, and he wrote a little book on the Book of Judges, a little commentary, and I find it quite helpful. And this is what he says. He summarizes all of Chapter One this way. He says, "Taken on its own terms, Chapter One reads like a collection of Israel's press releases about their campaign. It is their spin on why they weren't as successful as we or as God might have expected." As we read, we are lulled into sympathy with the Israelites. When we are told that they could not drive out the Canaanites, we are inclined to agree and say, well, they did their best. And so we want to sympathize with, it, with them in this regard. Believing, we want to, that Israel did their best, but not only did they do their best, they did practical, sensible things. I mean, from a, t- from a godless perspective, you can say it's entirely practical and entirely uh, sensible for a nation to make another nation their slaves to build their nation on the backs and on the shoulders of other laborers so they're doing practical things they're doing sensible things they're doing their best so to speak and we want to think about that because we might we might say well can we really slight them can we slight them from trying really hard can we slight them from being practical can we slight them from being sensible but well, when you turn the page in your Bible to chapter two, you're gonna learn God's perspective. And God has a completely different assessment of what's going down with the people of Israel and all the tribes in chapter one. You turn over to chapter two and here you got God's assessment of Israel's choices. And listen to what he says. It says, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bakim and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I had promised to your fathers. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. You were not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You were to tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. We might say, well, they tried really hard. They did practical things. They did sensible things. But God says they did disobedient things. He says, you have disobeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I now say I will not drive out these peoples before you, meaning... You're gonna get what you desire. You want them in the land? I'm gonna leave them in the land and this is what's gonna happen. They're gonna become a thorn for you. This is God's judgment. They're gonna be thorns in your side and their gods, their idols, their false gods will become a snare and a trap to you. They will suffocate life out of you. And when the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they named that place Bachem, which means weeping and offered sacrifices there to the Lord. So here's what I want us to think about. Israel tried, but in the end, they said they couldn't do it. And so they failed over and over and over again. But if we're reading this passage correctly, when Israel says we tried but couldn't, God looks at them and says, no, it's not that you couldn't, it's that you wouldn't. Because the issues in your heart and the issues in your obedience have nothing to do with how strong you think you are. Everything has to do with how strong you think I am and whether or not I am with you and whether or not I am for you. You are saying you can't, I am saying you won't. You know, there are sometimes in Christianity today where people will counsel one another by saying things like, you know, God's never going to give you more than you can handle. And we'll counsel one another with that statement. God will never give you more than you can handle. But if we're reading the Bible correctly, nothing is further from the truth. God never promises not to give you more than you can handle. In fact, must of life you cannot handle. But what God does time and time and time again is he brings us into seasons, into stretches, into a way of life that says, look, I can't do this apart from your grace. I can't do this apart from your presence. I can't do this apart from your promise. I can't do this apart from your power. So it's not that God gives us things that God will never give us more than we can handle. No, he's gonna give us more than we can handle, but he's gonna say, look, I'm gonna be enough for you. I'm gonna go before you. I'm gonna fight for you. I'm gonna win for you. I'm gonna show you how adequate and sufficient and strong I am on behalf, on your behalf. This is God's promise and that's what we rest in. And so when we are tempted to say things, I can't handle this, I can't do this, God is always looking at his people and saying, look, it's not that you can't, it's that you won't. You're not trusting me, you're not believing me and that's the problem. Let me ask, where are some areas in your life right now where you may be saying, I can't and God may be saying to you, no, it's not that you can't. It's that you won't. Maybe it's in the area of your integrity where you're saying, well, God, if I were totally honest in my job, I'd lose it. You can't expect me to play fairly in this field and survive. And you're saying, I can't. And God's saying, no, it's not that you can't. It's that you won't. You're not trusting me to provide. You're not trusting me to be enough for you. Maybe it's in the area of personal forgiveness. And you say, well, I know I should forgive someone, but I just can't. Their offense to me was too deep, too dark, too great. And God is looking at you and he is saying, look, it's not that you can't, it's that you won't. And we consider the teaching of Jesus when he says, look, those who have been forgiven by me are going to forgive others. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's challenging. But with the power and the presence and the promises of God in your life, it's possible. And so we consider also maybe sexual temptation. And we say things like, well, I know this is wrong, but I can't say no. And a lot of times, we kind of find ourselves in those rhythms where we say, I know it's wrong, but I can't say no. Uh, We start rationalizing our behavior. We'll even twist the Bible to fit our preferences, our passions, our desires, our inclinations, and trying to find some way of justifying what we're doing. And we'll say things like, surely the Bible can't say this is wrong or that is wrong because God wants me to be happy, and this seems to be making me happy. And so we find ourselves saying, I can't. And all the while, God is saying, no, it's not that you can't. It's that you won't, you won't trust me, you won't believe me, you won't trust that the life I've designed is best for you. But then there's also the area of evangelism and sharing the gospel, and we say, well, I know I'm supposed to tell people about Jesus, but I just can't. What if I say the wrong thing and I mess them up forever? And you, if you say that, you're giving yourself way too much credit uh, if, if that's your perspective. You say, well, I know I'm supposed to tell people about Jesus. I know I should do that, but I just can't. And God is saying, look, no, it's not that you can't. It's that you won't. You're not trusting me. In fact, one of the main reasons God gives his Holy Spirit to us is so that we can do just that. In Acts chapters 1 and 2, we learn that God gives his Holy Spirit primarily so that we can be witnesses, so that we can testify to his grace and his goodness and talk about Jesus. So it's not that we can't, it's that we won't. But then there's another dynamic as it relates to financial stewardship, perhaps. You know, we live in a city where the cost of living is skyrocketing and everybody's pressing into their margins. And this is one area where I think many of us are tempted to compromise. This is one area where we're tempted to say, I can't. And we say, well, I can't give to the church and support the church. I can't give to bring relief to the poor. I can't give to to help advance God's kingdom in the world because I'm already strapped... I'm already strapped with all my other commitments and the cost of living here is too high and you're saying, I can't. But once again, I believe that God is saying, no, it's not that you can't, it's that you won't. You won't trust me to provide for you. You won't trust me to give you what you need. You won't trust me to be all that you need and then some. And so here you have this moment where Israel essentially in chapter one gets to the point where they say they can't and God is saying they won't. And you find this downward trajectory beginning in the opening passages of this book. You remember that the passage started on a positive note, right, with the people of Israel coming to the Lord and asking, who's going to go for us? And it starts high, but it ends low. It ends with the people of Israel weeping before God, and they seem in this moment to have hit rock bottom. And the question remains, is there any hope for them to returning to verse one? Is there any hope for them to get up out of this pit that they found themselves in at the end of this passage? And I believe this is a question that each and every one of us have had at some point in time in our lives and in our journey with Jesus. There's been days, stretches, and seasons of spiritual decline and struggle in our life. Moments when we've been moving downwards and perhaps we've hit rock bottom. Some of you may have hit rock bottom as you walked into this and and you were wondering if there's any hope of returning to a place of courageous faith. Is there any hope of returning to a place of courageous faith in the promises of God? This past week, I had the pleasure of taking my kids on their first bike ride around Green Lake. Uh, This summer, one of our goals was for our kids to learn how to ride their bikes, and they did. And so I finally got to where I could take all of them, or really two of the three, Asher and Delaney, around Green Lake. Now, getting to Green Lake was no problem because the route to Green Lake from my house is a steady decline. And so Asher made it down easily. He got down swiftly and we wrapped around Green Lake, had a good time. But then when we are coming back to the house, I'm leading the way and I'm out in front. And the next thing I know is I hear Asher crying out. And I turn around and there's now about 50 yards between me and him. And, and he's at the bottom of the, where the, of the decline and, and his legs are stuck. He can't get his pedals to turn because he's too weak. Now Asher got down that hill easily, no problem. He did that all by himself. But what he could not do is he could not get back up it. What he needed was for me, someone much stronger than him, to meet him at the bottom of the hill. I didn't ask Asher to meet me halfway, I went all the way to him. And then I used my strength to carry him back uphill so that he could be where he ultimately belonged. Well, there's a sense in which when it comes to disbelief in our lives, when it comes to compromise in our lives, when it comes to hitting rock bottom in our lives, we do that easily on our own. But the one thing we cannot do on our own is get up. We cannot get back to where we belong by ourselves. And so what do we do with that? Well, we come back to Judges chapter 1, verse 1. And you remember what God said to the people of Israel and how this book begins. They're asking who's going to fight for us. And then God's response is, Judah is to go. Now that's incredibly important. Of all the tribes, of all the leaders, God could have said is going to go first. He says, Judah is going to go first. Why is that? Well, because we are told in Genesis chapter 49 that there's going to come a king, there's going to come a ruler, and this ruler is going to come from the tribe of Judah. Listen to what we read Genesis 49, verse 8 Judah, your brothers will praise you, your hand will be on the necks of your enemies, your father's son will. Sons will bow down to you. Judah is a young lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches. He lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belong to him. The obedience, the trust, the loyalties of the people is going to belong to this one who's to come from the tribe of Judah, this lion of Judah. As you move throughout the rest of the Bible, you get to Revelation chapter five, verse five, and we learn exactly who this lion is. We learn who the lion of the tribe of Judah is. We learn that his name is Jesus. Revelation chapter five, verse five, in reference to Jesus, it says, do not weep, do not cry, do not... Do not think that you've hit rock bottom and you're stuck there forever and always. Do not weep, don't sweat it. The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has come and he has conquered. He has met you at the bottom. He's entered this fallen world and he lived the life that you could not live. He died the death you deserve to die. He rose from the grave to conquer sin, Satan, and death, your ultimate enemy, so that he could bring ultimate deliverance to your life. So if you are someone who has been on the decline and maybe you've hit rock bottom, there is always hope for you. But that hope is not gonna come to you because you somehow get moral, you somehow get strong, you somehow start looking to yourself to fix your life. No, hope will only come When you turn your eyes to Jesus and you fix your eyes upon the crucified and risen Messiah and you let the lion of the tribe of Judah to come into your life and to drive out disbelief, to drive out unbelief, bringing you into the life that he desires to bring you into, you can trust the promises of God because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. You can believe that God is enough for you because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And this is what he's done for all of us. He's met us at the bottom so he could bring us to the top. Let's pray.